Welcome to HealthAid Chats. I'm the co-founder and CEO of HealthAid. We aim to democratize health information from verified experts, specializing in preventive health and performance optimization. Here we have Dr. Ross Walker. He's an eminent cardiologist specializing in preventive health. Welcome. Thanks very much, Barry. It's an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Great. So um, could you please tell us a bit about your personal background and professional background, how you ended up in cardiology? Yeah, okay. Well, well, as a, as a teenager, I had a fascination with science. In fact, as a child, I had a fascination with science. And that fascination continued. And I really was very interested in chemistry. But then when I, I got into high school, I thought, you know, it'd be better to be able to translate that into uh, the helping profession. So, so I got into medicine. And, and uh, I, I, at the end of my medical career, I, I was oh, sorry, at the end of my med, being a medical student, I was thinking I'll probably just go to general practice and general practice is a very good job and it's something I, I, I have great respect for general practitioners, but I just felt like I wanted a bit more. I wanted to, to be able to specialise in one area. And when, when I went into medicine, I, I, I don't really like fiddling with my hands. I'm a surgeon, so I'm standing there for hours and fiddling. I, I, I have a panic attack if I go into a Bunnings hardware store. So, so I'm not a DIY person. I'll never die of a DIY, I'll get a, a DIY injury because I don't do it. But I do like using the little grey cells, as Hercule Perot would say. And I found that cardiology, when I was doing my medical training as a physician, was the most appealing specialty because it had so many aspects. It had the preventative aspects, the lifestyle aspects. There was great therapeutics, wonderful medications for cardiology and also wonderful interventions. So, and you could choose any of those areas. And eventually... At the end of my medical training, it was to go overseas and do the usual bit. You go overseas, do the PhD, become a professor. Um, but I had a young family and I thought I really didn't want to subject my wife and three small children to sitting in a dingy flat in the Mayo Clinic while I was out uh, uh, pushing my career. So I took them up to Coffs Harbour. And I was the cardiologist in Coffs Harbour for the first eight years of my medical career. And then after, after a while, we had a wonderful time in Coffs Harbour, but my children were getting to the teenage years. I wanted to make sure they attended good schools and we didn't want to stream them out to boarding school. So we came back to Sydney and that was 28, 29 years ago. And, uh, and so I just built up my career from then. Uh, and there was been, there's been quite a few hiccups along the way. So you can imagine having a very established practice in Coffs Harbour coming back to Sydney where there is a number of cardiologists. So I had to build my practice up again then and then uh, the probably the seminal part of my career is when I was approached by the Sydney Adventist Hospital in Moorunga in Sydney to set up a calcium scoring service. Now, calcium scoring is a CT scan that takes a non-invasive picture of your arteries, just a snapshot. So the CT takes a picture, no dye, no injections. And you get a beautiful picture of the coronary arteries. And it's the most predictive test for heart disease risk. So I introduced this in 1999 in conjunction with the Sydney Hospital and one of my cardiologic colleagues, Dr. David Grout. And I was vilified by my colleagues. The Cardiac Society pilloried me. They, they put out a position statement against calcium scoring, uh, saying it was unproven and there was too much radiation, all, all this absolute nonsense. And, and that was 23 years ago. And since it's been proven beyond a doubt, I've I think it was already proven back then, but it was, it's been proven even more that it is the most predictive test for heart disease risk. 
unfortunately has been bastardized in this test called CT angiography, which is not a, a screening test for asymptomatic people, but it's still being used. And, and anyone who's listening to this, please, if your doctor says, we're going to do a CT angiogram on you, no, you just need the calcium score. What's the difference? Same technology, but the CT angiogram is an intravenous injection. You could potentially have an anaphylactic reaction to, or it may even damage your kidneys. Uh, it makes you glow in the dark for three days afterwards on most machines because there's a lot of radiation, whereas the calcium score is low radiation. And also it makes your wallet $500 lighter because neither of these tests is covered by Medicare. So I think all males at 50, all females at 60, as a routine should have a coronary calcium score to measure how much muck they've got in the arteries. Now, Barry, if you said to me, look, my dad had a bypass at 45, well, I'd do a calcium score on you at age 40. So, so it's not a hard and fast rule. You have to be 50 right. to have the test. If I've got a 50-year-old woman whose cholesterol's high, then I would um, get a calcium score on her at age 50. I saw a woman today who, who I first saw her 10 years ago when she was 42. She's now 52. And when she was 42, her mother had had a heart attack at 48 and someone had already done a coronary calcium score on her at 42 and it was off the scale, anything above 400 serious. 42-year-old woman, her score was 580, which is very severe coronary atherosclerosis. Oh. So, so I, I, for the last 25 years or so, I've really moved into the area of preventative cardiology. So I'd strangely prefer people to prevent their heart attack than actually treat it. So I haven't treated a heart attack for about 20 years because I prevent them. Um, but I don't work in hospitals anymore because of my speaking career, because of my radio shows. Uh, and, and I've got a busy cardiologic practice where I see mainly preventative cases. Great. So just on that point, you're talking about high cholesterol. I yeah. mean, that's common in particular populations as well, I'm guessing. Um, is that a big risk factor? Is it something to be concerned about? Should people Look, be going a great question, there? Barry. And the answer is yes and no. Okay. In, in fact, if you look at a whole group of people who've had heart disease and compare them to people who, have, who don't have heart disease, they have the same cholesterol levels when you average the cholesterols out. I've, and let me make the point here, and this is a really vital point for all diseases. All modern diseases are genetic. Heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, osteoporosis, they're all genetic, but your genes loads the gun, then your environment pulls the trigger. So even our response to trauma and infection is genetic. So often, well, it's not often, but occasionally you'll hear a, a person in their 30s gets severe COVID and dies. And they go, well, why on earth did that happen? Now, typically COVID affects the very old, the very sick for other reasons, or the very fat. So COVID loves those three things, and, and that's where we're seeing all the deaths from this. But occasionally somebody who's not, none of those things will still get severe COVID and possibly even die. And those people have different weird genetic abnormalities they were born with, so they've responded badly to COVID or influenza or even the common cold. Wow. I've seen people get the common cold and still die from that. Wow. So, so everything is genetic. Now, cholesterol is genetic, as is heart disease. But then if you have the genes, there may be a crossover. Sometimes high cholesterol will lead to heart disease. Sometimes it doesn't. And here's where I think most people are getting it wrong. You've heard of the good and bad cholesterol. Yes. Okay? LDL bad, HDL good. That is complete simplistic nonsense. Okay. LDL and HDL are divided into small bits and large bits. And here, Barry, is where size is important. 
the larger your LDL, the larger your HDL, the better it is for you. So for example, today, I'll give you just a, my caseload for today. Yes. I saw a woman, first patient this morning, who's 67. Her total cholesterol is 8.5. Her, her HDL cholesterol is 3.9, which is incredibly high. And her triglycerides are 0. 0.6. Now she's been told by cardiologists and GPs, you've got to get your cholesterol level, level lower. You're going to die if you don't have a heart attack. Compl Again, this is scaremongering nonsense. So she had a coronary calcium score, zero. Nothing in her artery, so therefore she doesn't need her cholesterol lowered because in her case, her cholesterol is almost certainly all large, large LDL, large HDL, healthy pattern. So I reassured her, keep her lifestyle tight as we all should be doing, which I'll, I'll get to you when you ask me some questions later about that. But also I gave her a thing called Bergamet, which comes from Calabrian oranges, and I've got to declare my position with this. I do all the research with the Italians on this. I, I write the books on this bergamot product. And it, in my view, it's the best, the best natural product in the world. And what that does is shift your LDL from small to large, reduces your risk for diabetes, for fatty liver, improves the blood flow to your head. So I think everyone over the age of 50 should be taking this bergamot product as an example. So, so in her case, I just reassured her about her lifestyle. And then I, go, I gave her some supplements where I said, you do not need a statin because here's the key with coronary calcium screen. A study of 13 and a half thousand people over 10 years out of the US showed that if your coronary calcium score was below 100, there was no statistically significant benefit from swallowing a pill to lower your cholesterol. And that's the thing about cholesterol. I think we overdo it. The real thing that spills into your arteries is what we call small, oxidized LDL cholesterol. Large LDL cholesterol, which makes up most of your LDL, is actually good for you. Large HDL cholesterol sucks fat out of the arteries. Large LDL cholesterol builds healthy cell membranes, cell metabolism. It's the basic ring for vitamin D, bile salt, and, and steroid metabolism. We need large LDL. And small HDL is pro-inflammatory. So it's not just as simple as saying, my cholesterol's high, therefore I need a pill. My cholesterol's high, therefore I'm going to have heart disease. Doesn't work like that. Wow, that's some very, very interesting insights there, Ross. Um, on that point, is saturated fats bad? So, in no, 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 no. no. Um, no. In fact, that that's a, a something else. All these myths in medicine. We're, we're, even if you go to any well-respected uh, heart society or go to a journal and they'll say, minimize your intake of saturated fats. What I say to that is show me the evidence. I wrote a book uh, in 2002 called The Cell Factor, where I said there was no link between saturated fat and heart disease. And that was from 27 studies published in the British Medical Journal showing no link. But recently there was a trial called the Pure Study of 220,000 people in 50 different countries followed for nine years showing there is no link between saturated fat intake and heart disease. In fact, the problem there was carbohydrates, what I call white death, which is sugar, white bread, pasta, potatoes, to a lesser extent, rice, all goes straight to the belly, causes insulin resistance because 70% of heart disease is due to insulin resistance, oh, which wow. is a, a gene carried by 30% of Caucasians, 50% of Asians, and 100% of people with darker skin, which is why you've never seen a skinny Tongan. And when you expose 
people who are insulin resistant to Western crap, so Western lifestyles, you markedly increase the risk for diabetes, for blood pressure, for a cholesterol abnormality where you get a high triglyceride, low HDL, which is a marker for small LDL. It's very easy to put on fat around the belly and all of that leads to cardiovascular disease, obesity-related cancers, fatty liver and gout. Wow. And so that's insulin resistance, 70%, 20% is a thing called lipoprotein little a, which is lipoprotein, lowercase a in brackets, because in one in five people, and doctors hardly ever measure it, that's 90% of heart disease caused by that. So this pure study, talking about saturated fat, one of the subsets of the study showed that if you had 100 grams of red meat per day, saturated fat, three servings of high fat dairy per day, you reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease and death by 25%. So when I hear people talking the saturated fat nonsense, they are wrong. Look at the evidence. The evidence shows that it is calories, so excessive calories, excessive processed carbohydrates, and the only fat that's bad for you is trans fats. Trans fats are the synthetic fats used to process and package food and make food uh, a hard and, and gluggy and be able to sit in a box for hours. That, that's or days and weeks and months. That's why you avoid trans fats. But saturated fats, I'm not saying they're good for you, but I'm saying there's no evidence that they hurt you and some suggestions they actually do give you some benefit. And the best fats are, of course, the natural fats that you get from things like olive oil and nuts. The, the omega-3 fats are very good for you. So, so don't, don't believe all the saturated fat nonsense because it is nonsense. Wow. So the Mediterranean diet, would that fit in? The something? only diet on the planet, Barry, that has any evidence base is the Mediterranean diet. So people talk about keto or paleo or one of these fad diets, and they are fad diets with no, no scientific long-term evidence. The Mediterranean diet from a number of studies has been shown to reduce your risk for very common um, modern diseases by somewhere between 30 to 50%. So we're talking about if you stay, stay on a Mediterranean diet, 30% reduction in heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, chronic kidney disease, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, the whole works cancers, common cancers. And what's the Mediterranean diet? You don't have to get pretty fancy about it. Let's just give it to you very simply. All of us should be having two or three pieces of fruit per day, three to five servings of vegetables, servings about a half a carrot, not a huge amount. And you say that's easy. If it's easy, how come less than 10% of people do it? And those who do have the lowest rates of heart disease and cancer in the community just by doing that. So all of us should be doing that. And on top of that, little bits of meat, eggs, dairy, chicken, fish, nuts, and olive oil. It's called the Mediterranean diet. And I'm not saying anyone should be over consuming anything. The problem for our society, Barry, is we all eat more food than we need to. That's just what happens. And so we should cut back our calories, cut back our carbs, and keep our alcohol intake under control. And, that, and that's with the Mediterranean-style diet. And avoid processed packaged crap masquerading as food. It's not food at all. And I don't care what graffiti is written on the box, like low fat or no cholesterol. No sugar. <laughs> graffiti or low, no added sugar. They don't need to add sugar. There's enough sugar in the damn stuff. So, so we, we've, we've got this, this bizarre notion about, oh, look, it, it's good for me because it's low in fat. It's rubbish. I wrote a, a chapter in a, a book I wrote 20 years ago called Diets Don't Work. And one of the chapters is called Convenience is Killing Us. 
Something that's quick and easy is typically very bad for you. So put the saturated fat nonsense to bed and, and just realize it's about having good fruits and vegetables, good quality fats. And if you enjoy a bit of meat occasionally, that's fine. If people want to be vegetarian or vegan, good diets. I'm not knocking those diets. Right. But for people who want to eat meat, uh, then there's no evidence of any serious harm from eating meat or eggs or dairy. On that point, what about Novak Djokovic's famous gluten-free diet? Look, again, in, in Australia, the right. problem we have in Australia, I'll go back, I, won't, I don't want to give Novak Djokovic too much credit because of his ridiculous anti-vaccination stance, but, but the, the problem we have in Australia is our wheat is hybridised. It's a thing called tri, trisectomestivan or something, and it's very hybridised wheat. There's a huge amount of gluten. In Italy, they have durum wheat, which is non-hybridised, it's very pure and it's, it's very, very low levels of gluten. So when you expose people to Western diets where there's a high, a high content of gluten in, in wheat, they, they can be sensitive to it. So one in 70 people carry the genes and have celiac disease, but 10% of people are gluten sensitive and feel better when they go on a gluten-free diet. So again, if people want to do that, that's fine. Um, personally, doesn't affect me and I, I I don't go overboard in the in the gluten department anyhow, but when I eat gluten, it doesn't affect me. If it does affect you, it's pretty simple. Don't do it. Yep. And um just the point of diabetes, is is that on the same mechanism as at all as gestational diabetes? Oh, absolutely. It, yep. It's the gene for insulin resistance, which is okay. also on the same same mechanism as polycystic ovaries. Right. It's, all, it's all part so insulin resistance the commonest genetic abnormality in the world and typically when a woman who gets pregnant gets gestational diabetes they're insulin resistant and then often the diabetes will recur as they get older and they clap on a bit of weight again for, for whatever reason so so absolutely okay that no, sounds good so um i think that's that's great insights you've, you've given there um for our audience um are there any other supplements worth considering? I know um, at Chem Warehouse, for example, there's like, you know, the co- Oh, look, you can walk into any health food store or discount vitamin place or any, any pharmacy, and there's shelves of all these different vitamins, and some of them I think are legitimate. I, I think the key ones, I mean, I take a bucket of supplements every day, but, but let, before I get onto the supplements, can I say to you, 80% of everyone's management has got nothing to do with doctors. It's how you look after yourself. What I call foundation therapy, what I call the five keys of being healthy, from the least important to the most important. Number one, you cannot be healthy and smoke. Anyone who smokes is sick. And going with number one, so this is quitting all addictions, you cannot be healthy and drink too much alcohol. The evidence, if you enjoy a glass or two of wine a day with a meal, it's just called being civilised. And there's some weak health benefits doing that if you combine it with the other healthy lifestyle principles. You cannot be healthy and use any illegal drugs whatsoever. So I, I hope this, this push to legalise cannabis in this country, I hope it never happens. And I'm on the board of a medical cannabis company because I believe in medical cannabis, totally different from smoking something. Right. Number two is good quality sleep. Seven to eight hours of good quality sleep is as good for your body as not smoking. Number three is nutrition, which we've already given a heavy flog into. So eat less, eat more naturally. Number four is the second best drug on the planet. Three to five hours every week of moderate exertion. More is not better. 
Number five is the best drug on the planet, which is a thing called happiness. If you do those five things well, you reduce your risk for all diseases somewhere between 70 to 80%. If I give you a pill to lower your cholesterol quick because you've had a heart attack stent or a bypass, or you've got a high calcium score, I reduce your risk for a heart attack about 20 to 30%. Lifestyle is much more powerful. So then you're asking me about supplements. I've already mentioned the bergamot product that I have the association with. I think everyone over the age of 50 should take that or people who are struggling with their weight when, when they're younger, people are insulin resistant. It's very good for all of those things. So I, I'm a great believer in that. I take every day ubiquinol, which is the active version of coenzyme Q10. I take that for energy. There's a thing called magnesium orotate that also lifts up the CoQ10 in the mitochondria, which I being an ailey retentive neurotic, I take a lot of these things. Vitamin K2 for people who have muck in their arteries, calcium out of the arteries and puts it into the bones. And for people whose blood pressure is running a bit rich, there's a thing called kyolic garlic. So that's what I use for heart disease. But there's strong evidence from a little known place in America called Harvard, one of the greatest learning institutions in the world. They've been doing for the last 30 years the male physician's trial and the nurse's health study. So to take one example of supplements, a multivitamin every day. If you take a multivitamin on top of a healthy lifestyle, so don't combine it with a crappy diet and think it's going to do anything, or don't combine it with smoking and think it's going to do anything. But they showed that up to 10 years taking this multivitamin every day did absolutely nothing. But when they got to 10 years, this is a randomized controlled trial, there was an 8% reduction in cataracts and common cancers. And you say, well, 8% is not much. They're still pretty good with a multivitamin. But then when they looked at the observational data in the women at 15 years, a 75% reduction in bowel cancer, 25% reduction in breast cancer, 23% reduction in cardiovascular disease. When they looked at the doctors at 20 years, the male doctors at 20 years, 44% reduction in cardiovascular disease just by taking a multivitamin every day. And then you can throw in omega-3s, omega-3 supplements. It's good to get your omega-3s from fish. I personally don't enjoy the taste of fish. So I, I, take, I get my omega-3s in a supplement. It's probably better to, with all of these things. It's better to, to have the fruits and vegetables and the good quality foods. Don't see supplement, supplements as a replacement. That's why they're called supplements. Well, that's... um. Great points there from a cardiologist. Um, on the point of, you said moderate exercise. So you've got people 45, 50 or even above these days yep. increasing their participations in marathon, triathlons yep. and Ironmans and things like that in Sydney and Melbourne and sure. everywhere else in the world. What's what's your take on that? Is, is that safe? Is, I've heard there's heart attacks sometimes that happen. Yeah, look, can I, can I, firstly, before I get on to exercise, the worst thing for you is not exercising. So, and the, this is the problem in Australia, 50% of the population don't do any exercise. 25% do a bit. It's only 25% of us. One, one quarter of the population does the prescribed amount of exercise, which is three to five hours a week. So that's where you get the health benefits. There are some studies to show that the health benefits drop off a bit once you get beyond seven hours a week. It's been shown, this was a study that was done, I think, either on the Boston or the New York Marathon. They, they assessed the hearts of people who had finished marathons and found that a third of people had problems in their right ventricle at the end of, of the marathon 
and a third had a troponin rise. Now, troponin is a very sensitive indication of cardiac damage, nothing else, cardiac damage. So this is saying that a third of people, one in three people, get some degree of heart damage by running a marathon. I tell everyone, you want to run a marathon, there's a perfectly good bus service. So I, I don't get marathons. I, I think they're... You, you might, you know, people want to put it on their bucket list, I've run a marathon and, and do it, but don't do it for health reasons. Because for health reasons, there is a slight risk in running marathons. There is no risk for, for the vast majority of the population having a three to five hour a week exercise habit, unless you have symptoms. You see, I don't think anyone drops dead suddenly of heart disease. Everyone gets a warning, but just most people ignore the warning. There's a study done on 22 squash players who, sorry, 21 squash players who dropped dead playing squash. 21 out of 22, so 22, 21 out of 22 had told a doctor or a relative in the week before they'd had chest pain and didn't get it seen to. So if you have symptoms, don't run your marathon. You, you probably know the story of Jim Fix. Jim Fix wrote the complete book of running, dropped dead in a race at, at, at age 53 but for six weeks before that race had chest pain. And they said, oh, Jim, you're too fit. You can run marathons. You can do all these triathlons or whatever. It couldn't be your heart. It's probably just some muscles. He drops dead. So wow. symptoms are always a warning. So, so again, the vast majority of people who are very high level of exercises will get, get, a, get away with it. They have done some studies showing when they compared people who do moderate exercise, the sort I'm talking about, three to five hours a week, two-thirds cardio, a third resistance training. Compare that to people who were the, the elite athletes over the age of 50, much higher rates of coronary calcification. Now, again, that might be stable disease, but there's still more atherosclerosis in high-level activity, and that's because you're pushing the heart too much. So it's like the Buddhists always talk about the middle path. Always go the middle path. Extremes in anything is not good for you. Well, that's some great advice there. Ross, um, that's going to shock some people, I'm guessing. <laughs> Particularly know, but, but again, most, personalities. Very, yeah. most people will get away with it. Yep. So the occasional tragedy where they don't. So on that point, can HIT training replace constant cardio? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's some good work on HIT training. Um, and, and for people who don't know what HIT is, high-intensity interval training. And it's sort of what I do at, at home. So I played soccer and squash till I was 52, completely destroyed my right knee. So I had a, my right knee replaced two years ago. So I've got, I've got an exercise bike. I've broken three exercise bikes in 13 years from overuse. And I do 30 minutes of intensive exercise where I do, I do HIIT training, very fast for 10 seconds, moderate for 20, very fast for 10. I do that in 30 minutes. So I, I cycle about... 16 Ks in a half an hour at the highest resistance on the bike. And, and that works for me. Now, I, and people say to me, what is the best form of exercise? It's very simple, one you'll keep doing. So whatever works for you, you keep doing it. Whether it's tennis, whether it's cycling, whether it's swimming, whether it's walking, I don't care. The worst thing is not to exercise. And on that point, does strength training improve your heart health? Oh, absolutely. But strength training also reduces your risk for cancer. So I think it's really important to do some light weights, yoga, Pilates, those sort of things are really, really good for you as well because they, they improve your muscle strength, you redirect the blood flow to the muscles and it improves the immune system. So strength training is terrific. Okay, so that's, that's something not commonly known. Most people 
kind of associate cardio it's, aerobic yeah. and exercise isn't just cardio because there's what you want to achieve with exercise is is cardiovascular fitness you want to achieve the strength training or anaerobic fitness so some muscle strength because a lot of people don't realize this osteoporosis which is of course weak bones starts at age 30 but so does sarcopenia which is weak muscles so you lose bone and muscle strength from age 30 and the way to overcome that the best treatment of osteoporosis is exercise the best treatment of getting weak muscles is to strengthen your muscles and and those those strong muscles support strong bones so if you have weak bones and weak muscles you, you're going to get very frail so you, you want those two components the cardio and the resistance training so you can stay agile and you can stay flexible and 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 these these and people lose their stability as they get older so when people get over the age of 65 and this is really disturbing just under half of people over the age of 65 are considered pre-frail or frail which is really very disturbing so so exercise is an important component of all this great all right so let's um just close up now it's great great tips there i'm gonna have to cut them up into shorts and stick to on instagram um there's a whole textbook there, I think, for, for the public. Um, what would your three key tips be if you only had 10 seconds, right? Well, the, 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 five, the five tips. Five tips. No additions, good yep. sleep, good eating and less of it, three to five hours of exercise, and cultivate happiness every day in your life. Okay. So if people are interested in more learning more about your content, what can they do? Well, they can either listen to my national radio show, which, which is on the Nine Network all throughout Australia from seven o'clock every Sunday night for two hours, or they can get me to speak at one of their conferences, which I always love to do, and go to my website, drrosswalker.com. Fantastic. And do you still consult with the public? Oh, absolutely. I see okay. patients three and a half days a week and do all the other, other things on the other days. And uh, just a question there, what is your ideal client? that you'd love to oh, see. My idea, ideal client would be a, an intelligent, motivated person who wants to take control of their health. Um, typically, the people I see, there's a reason for them to come. Their father might have died around the same age. Their next door neighbours just dropped dead. Their cholesterol's high and their doctor wants to put them on a statin and they're not sure whether they need it. Their blood pressure's out of control. So they're, they're the sort of people that I see all the time. But my ideal client is somebody who, who's going to be willing to make some changes in their life if they need to. Right, so a self-motivated client. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. All right, thanks for your time, Ross. Um, it's my pleasure, Barry, any time at all. No problems.